0: Thank you. It's uh, good to be back with you. It's been 18 months or so since I've been down here. It's good to see many people again and all the work God is doing here. Imaginary gardens with real frogs in them. Imaginary gardens with real frogs in them. That's how one professor has described Jesus' parables. You see, the four Gospels give us lots of teachings from Jesus, and a lot of those teachings come to us in this rather odd form of these imaginative stories. But Jesus doesn't just give, like, really uh, abstract, you know, straight-up teaching, nor does he give these totally fantastical stories with foxes dressed up or elephants with two trunks, and then we just all going to go, I don't know. Instead, he gives these creative imaginary stories, but they always have real frogs in these imaginary gardens. They always have something that's really personal, really practical to say, even though they come to us in the form of these creative stories. And that's the case uh, for our parable today. As Josh said, um, if you've been around, you may know, but if not, we at all the Sojourn campuses are doing a series of, par- a series of sermons on the parables. We did three weeks on parables on money and now we're starting four weeks on parables on the kingdom. Really, all of the parables of Jesus are about the kingdom because that's the focus of Jesus' ministry. He is portraying and inviting people into the reality that God's reign in heaven is coming to earth. It's come in Jesus, and it will ultimately come at his second coming. And so he's inviting people to become disciples to follow him and align themselves with him. And so he often teaches in these parables to give us a picture of what God's kingdom is like, including the one we're going to look at today, which is one of my all-time favorites. It's from Matthew chapter 20. It's called The Laborers in the Vineyard. So before we turn to that, and it is a rather perplexing and memorable story, I just want to pray once more. So if you'll just join me as I pray. Our Father, we thank you for your abundant kindness we thank you for the freedom we have to worship here we thank you for bringing each person here which is in your providence and in your kindness today and i i'm just glad to pause and say that all we're doing here is meaningless if you don't come and breathe life into us even as we couldn't make ourselves be born so too we can't make ourselves be born again or make ourselves understand you. You've got to breathe life into us. So please speak and bless us today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Matthew 20. If not, we'll put the verses on the screen here as well. Let me just jump into this story, this parable from Matthew chapter 20. The first couple of verses read this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. So pretty straightforward. This first couple verses give us the setup. Jesus says he's going to try to explain what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like with a parable, with an analogy. And that's what parables are. They're saying this is like this, and this will help you understand it. And so he uses something that would be very, very familiar in his day, and I think we can understand as well, the idea of a vineyard owner who goes into the marketplace and hires agricultural day laborers. Somebody's just gonna work for a day, and so the the custom would be all these people would show up who needed work, and the manager or the, the foreman or the landowner would show up, and he would choose some people, and that's what we see happens. And he agrees with them for what is entirely a normal daily wage, a denarius, it would be called in those days. It's a just wage. It's a fair wage. Now, nothing too abnormal here. This would be like if you agreed to work for a temp agency for a day, whatever the right daily rate was, or if you're a substitute teacher for a day in the Jefferson County Public Schools, whatever the rate is today, I don't know, $75 or $100. It's a fair enough rate. There it is. Nothing exciting or abnormal in the story. But then the story takes a turn, and really the turn and the, turn the story itself is going to develop across three phases or three acts, and let's look at the, the first one. It begins in verse 3, and let me read this for you. So when the landowner went out, so he'd hired people at about 6 a.m. probably and sent them into the, into the, into the vineyard, no big deal, but now he goes out about 9 o'clock, a few hours later, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. Then the landowner went out again about noon and also at three o'clock and he did the same. And then about five o'clock, and there's only about an hour worth of work to be done, he went out and he found others standing around and he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? And they said, because no one's hired us. And he said to them, then you also go into the vineyard. Now, the first thing about this next phase of the story is that it's starting to get a little odd, because it wouldn't be normal for a vineyard owner to go out multiple times. Usually he would see how much work he had to have done, and he would decide how many workers he needs, and he'd go get them early in the morning and send them in. But for whatever reason, he realizes he needs more workers or wants more workers, so he goes and hires more. So it's a little odd. But the main thing, I think, Jesus' hearers would take away, and what I want us to take away from this is this this vineyard owner is actually being portrayed as both just and good. So he agrees um, with a completely normal wage. There's no injustice here. And he's even more than just, he's generous. He's very generous. Because as he goes and hires these other people, that's really an act of grace, especially those people from that last hour. Because if you can imagine with me, the people that have been standing there all day waiting for work, if they don't find work, that means they probably don't eat that day. And especially the people that are there at the 5 o'clock hour and haven't had work, those are probably people that are elderly or sick of some sort. Maybe they've had some injury and they're not able to work, and so they often get overlooked. And so this man goes and, by his choice, gives them work, even though there's only an hour worth of work of daylight left. Now, if the parable just ended there, that would be awesome, right? We could just say, hey, this is a great parable of God's graciousness that he, you know, he, he's generous to lots of people. Or maybe we could think of what Matthew 9, chapter 9 says, where Jesus says, the, the harvest is plentiful, the, but the laborers are few. Go and, and pray for the Lord to send out laborers into the harvest. Those are both three great ways to end it, but it's going to get even more interesting. It doesn't end there. And this leads us to our second act, and let me read for you. Verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> then when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, his foreman, Now call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and going to the first. And when those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now notice. Notice. So the landowner brings his manager or foreman into the picture, lets him do the talking. He's standing right there. We'll see you here in a minute. He's observing this. And he sets up this very interesting situation where instead of paying people in the order that they started to work, he decides to pay them in reverse order. So he says, pay the people who worked only an hour first and then give them the full day's wage. And when everyone sees this, because everybody else is standing around there They are amazed at this landowner's, not only justice, but again, his generosity. He generously hires all these workers, and then he pays even the people that worked for an hour, who probably aren't that great of workers even, he pays them the full day's amount. What a blessing. What a generous landowner. And with smiles on their faces at this generosity, the first thought is, wow, this landowner is amazing. And then I can guarantee you what the next thought was especially for those who had worked all day, the ones who have been working for, you know, eight or 10 or 12 hours, they're thinking, wow, <laughs> if those guys who only worked an hour got a full day's wage, how much am I going to get paid? I mean, I'll probably get, I mean, this is ka this is bonus time, right? Not only am I going to make a normal day's wage, I'll probably get, what, what maybe three, four, five times, maybe 10 times what I would normally make, I mean, I'm going to take my kids out to Jehoshaphat's 31 kosher flavors ice cream tonight. (laughs) Maybe buy my wife that skin to hang over the hut door, whatever it is. Maybe a little extra money to put aside, which rarely happens for day laborers, in case something goes wrong, you're injured or something. There's no Social Security, right? I mean, all they have is their day labor. And then look at what happens in verse 10. Now, when the first came, so they go through, he pays each of them, and then, when the people who had worked all day came, the first ones came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. So the manager calls each group up, he pays them all a denarius. So the people watching this, especially the, the legitimate workers, the ones who worked all day, the regular workers, the hardworking workers, they're seeing a denarius paid to everybody and they're probably thinking, okay, that's a little weird, still very, still very generous. So I'm, I'm sure that once we, the real workers, get to it, I'm sure it's still going to be very generous. And then finally, all the day workers come up and they're thinking, this is it, right? But they're rudely awakened out of these exciting consumeristic visions or whatever dreams they have by the cold water splash of seeing just, again, chink, one denarius land in their palm. And they can't resist it. Not only are they grumbling in their hearts, some of them are so mad at this that they even grumble against the landowner. And I think we can understand this, right? I mean, I think if we're honest, and this is what's so intriguing about this story, we would feel... No different. In fact, maybe you're feeling that right now. This is not fair. This is not right. We worked our tails off. We deserve more than those bums who only worked an hour, or even those people who worked half the day. Any of you who have had kids or have been kids—so I guess that's all of us—you've seen this a million times over. I mean, you know, kids are just, you know, less filtered versions of who we all are, right? They just haven't learned all the socially acceptable ways to show up, but their hearts are no different than ours. And if you've ever had kids or been a kid, he got two graham crackers. Why did I only get one? His piece of cake is bigger than mine. It just goes on and on a million times. I've had six kids. I've seen plenty of this in my life. And again, it's no different. It's just you know coming from our own hearts, their mother's side, especially, I'm sure. Just kidding. <laughs> it's coming from All of our hearts, it's just that kids haven't learned to cover it up. But it's, it's exactly what all of us feel when we read this parable. This isn't fair. How could this be? Our hearts are no different. And that leads us to the third and final act or phase of this story. And it's the dialogue that follows between the landowner and these grumbling workers. Let me pick it up at verse 11 again. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner and they said, these last ones worked only an hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied, the landowner replied to one of them, friend, I, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? So take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so the first, the last will be first and the first will be last. See, these expectations of them receiving more, at first they were excited and they had gratitude for the day's work and the apparent generosity, but then that gratitude and joy Becomes complaining and grumbling and discontent. The all-day workers are so mad that again they even dare to speak up. And again, that landowner's response is is crucial. He doesn't take offense. He doesn't threaten them. Fine. Well, I'm not paying you anything, right? Is good parenting moment. I'm sure that's happened. Instead, he answers kindly and clearly, and he says, friend, I, I've not done anything unjust. And no, he hasn't. Do you realize that? He did pay them the fair wage for the day and the amount they agreed upon. And it was a fair wage. There was nothing wrong in what he did. His choice to be generous to others in no way violates his righteousness and his justice. He did what he agreed upon. It's not as if he didn't come through on what he said. It's not as if he paid people randomly, like some people uh, got an unequal pay for, they didn't get what they were worth working. Everybody got at least what they were worth working, uh, what their worth, work was worthy of, and then beyond. And most of all, he says, all of this is his. He can do what he wants with it, can't he? And yes, he can. And then this wise and discerning landowner, this generous landowner vineyard owner, points to really what the real issue is here. It's not actually about the pay. It's about the matter of the heart. You see, all these day workers, these day workers, they've not been wronged. The problem is not the amount of pay they got, which was just, but that their hearts are jealous and envious of others' good fortune. In the workers' minds, there's the cry of injustice. How dare he? But that's really just smoke clouding their minds from a heart that is burning with envy. The indignation that they feel, I'm sure in their minds feels just, and maybe you and I feel as well. But in kindness, the landowner says, I have what is mine, and I've done no one wrong. If I choose to be generous, that's something about the heart of the people that makes them angry. And then Jesus ends with the moral of the story, this phrase that isn't entirely clear what it means here, the last will be first and the first shall be last. Yes, the last workers were paid first, but the first and the first were paid last. But beyond that, it's not real clear what that saying means. So it's a fascinating story. It's a memorable story. It's a story that kind of hooks us and makes us wonder what's going on here. And we're left asking, what in the world does this mean? What is the real frog that's in this imaginary garden that we're supposed to take away from this? Well, it turns out you and I are not the first people to ask this, to read this parable, to hear this parable, and wonder what in the world is going on. You see, in many of Jesus' parables, especially the longer ones like this, you actually get an interpretation, like the parable of the sower, which we'll meet in a week or two. You'll see that Jesus actually unpacks what it means exactly, And that's really nice when that happens. In this case, we're given this parable, and then he never explains exactly what it means. And so in the history of the church throughout the last 2,000 years, there have been lots of different ways Christians have tried to understand this parable. For example, some have seen in this parable the successive stages of the world where you've got five different stages representing the five different hirings of ways that God dealt with people from Uh, Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Moses, and then finally to Gentiles, and that maybe that's what this parable is saying, and that in every case, God is gracious, and the others shouldn't complain against the others. Maybe that's one way to read it. Similarly, some people have seen the different stages of the hiring as representing uh, different stages of life. So some people become Christians at a young age, some people maybe when they're in their teens or 20s or 30s, some in their 50s maybe, and some on their deathbed. And this reading of the parable would say that, you know, God is gracious and generous no matter what stage you become a Christian. Related to this, some people would argue that this is a a picture that in God's kingdom, which will come, there's no difference between anyone in the sense that everyone is rewarded the same. This kind of vision of the kingdom as this sort of radically egalitarian state. Or, Maybe at a lower level of interpretation, some people in the 20th century have talked about this, have interpreted this to mean that Jesus is like fighting against unjust labor practices, right? That this is sort of speaking at the kind of direct level to economic issues or something. Or maybe the broadest, most popular interpretation is quite general that really this parable is just a a picture of God's extravagant grace. And it's certainly that at least. But what are we to make of these? Well, I would say that with the exception of the purely economic reading or the no difference in rewards, I think those, both those have some weaknesses to them. I think every one of these readings, you can make decent biblical and theological arguments for them. In other words, I don't think what they're saying is untrue in light of the whole Bible. But I don't think they quite get at what Jesus is trying to say in this particular parable. I don't think they get to the heart of it. So what do I think the main point is? Well, I think... The key to understanding this rather confusing parable is to look at the context, to recognize that this parable is situated in the midst of some other stories, and let me show you what I mean. You know that weird saying at the end of in 2016, "The last shall be first and the first shall be last." The reason that seems kind of weird is because it does it appears to come out of nowhere. But if you have a Bible, we we don't have all these on the screen, sorry, but if you have a Bible, you can just listen. If you look back to the chapter right before this, chapter 19 of Matthew, you'll see that almost the same phrase, the same phrase in reverse order appears at the end of chapter 19. It says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then he tells the parable where it says, for, or therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, this is a case where in our modern Bibles, the chapter break is not a good idea, actually, because really this parable is meant to be a response to the stories that have just happened in chapter 19, and Matthew shows us that by repeating that phrase and saying, therefore. So we need to glance for a minute back at chapter 19 and say, what happens there that this parable would be a response to that? Well, what happens in chapter 19, there are a number of things. But one is the very famous story that many of you may know, as i not, of the, what we call the rich young ruler, where you have this pious, godly, uh, young man who's a faithful Jew. He's obeyed the commandments sincerely. Um, he's an upstanding citizen. He's become a leader in his synagogue. He's well-respected, and he's blessed by God. He's very wealthy. And he comes to Jesus in sincerity and asks about whether he could become a disciple of Jesus. And the response, it's a shocking story because Jesus, who knows his heart and knows that he's sincere in all his religiosity and all his piety that's true and sincere, he knows, though, the man's heart that he can see there's something that actually he loves a little bit more than he loves God. And that's all the wealth that he has. And so Jesus goes for the jugular as he does, he goes for the heart and says, Yes. Give up what you have and come follow me. Because that's what he knew the man's heart condition was. And the man can't do it. Despite all his godliness, he cannot give up all his wealth to become a disciple. And so he walks away. Well, when Jesus' disciples see this that are standing right there, Peter and James and John and others they are shocked. And you can see in chapter 19, they say, "Uh, okay, if this godly man who um, is well-recognized and is blessed by God with all this wealth, if he can't even be saved, he can't enter the kingdom, how in the world will anybody enter the kingdom? And Jesus' response is, it's true, that with just humanity's power, no one can. But with God... Anyone can enter the kingdom if they follow. And then in verse 27 of chapter 19, good old Peter. You've got to love Peter. I mean, he is so wholehearted and so whole, put his foot in his mouth all the time. He stands up and says, we have left everything to follow you. He sees the Yurch young ruler go away because he's not willing to leave things up. And Peter's thinking, we've all left everything. What will there be for us? He says, and Jesus says, how dare you, Peter, asking for yourself? No, he doesn't say that. (laughs) Verse 28, instead of rebuking Peter for that, he says, I tell you the truth. You who have given up any amount of thing to follow me, you will receive back a hundredfold of what you've given up because we're talking about entering God's kingdom. And then he goes on, Jesus goes on to make what I think is the most staggering promise of the whole Bible. He says to his disciples, and then by implication, this affects us too, but he says to his 12 disciples, and you, who have given up everything to follow me, when the kingdom comes, when the new Genesis comes, when the recreation of the world comes, you 12 disciples are going to sit in 12 thrones next to me, ruling or judging over the world. And by implication, all all Christians, we're not going to be on those 12 thrones, none of us here. That was for the 12 disciples. But we are all part of God's kingdom that will rule over the world in goodness and justice and beauty and peace. It's a staggering promise. And it's so staggering that I guarantee you that what happened is that as soon as Jesus said those words they didn't think about a single other thing he said except for that. Their first response was, wow, amazing. This is a staggering, beautiful, generous God. But you know what their second thought was? Well, we know it from, if you look just past our story in chapter 20, to chapter 20 verses, um, let's see, sorry, looking at the wrong verses, in 20 verse 20... James and John's mommy comes on the scene, right? At their initiative and comes up to Jesus and says, hey, uh, in that kingdom where the 12 disciples are going to rule over all the world, how about you let my sons be on your right hand and on your left? And all the disciples, you see, it says, are talking with each other about who's the most important and who's the greatest. Because after all, that's a great promise, but I don't want to be down here at seat six at the kids' table, right? Or back here, right? I want to hear when Jesus leans over and, and you know, says something really cool and secret to the, I want to be one of the special ones, or I don't want to receive the cup that's passed down, ugh, right? At, at seat six down here, way back in the back. They're all thinking First, wow, amazement. And then secondly, wait a minute, what about me? I want to be in a special place. And they're thinking about each other. Do you see how that maps and lays over with the parable? These hardworking laborers have given up. They've given of their time and energy. And they first respond with amazement at the landowner's generosity But then their second thought is precisely the disciples' second thought and precisely our second thought, which is, and what about me and looking at each other and thinking about what each other has versus what I might have? And just like kids. So what does this mean then for you and me today? I mean, I think that... Begins to get at it as we think about the context. Well, here's what I think this is saying to you and me today. Just like everywhere else in Scripture, this parable and these stories are inviting us to pay attention to our hearts, to do the hard work of looking inside and being honest with God what we find there. Jesus uses this shocking parable, and it is shocking. I think any of us who are paying attention to it feel something when we read it. We feel the injustice. We feel the oddity. Maybe you still feel a little unsettled by it. That's okay. That's precisely what Jesus wants to happen. Because, you see, the way God has made us, our emotions are something we need to pay attention to because they give us an opportunity to look, about, look inside and see what's really happening. Emotions are a gift, that are an invitation to pay attention to what's going on in the inner person, in our heart. And I think Jesus is saying to us, wake up, pay attention. This is like we're walking through our lives daydreaming and somebody throws a bucket of cold water in our face. We wake up or maybe you're texting and driving and all of a sudden you see the red lights of brake lights in front of you. It's a moment where all of a sudden you wake up and realize, right? This is what this parable does. And I think Jesus wants us to wake up, to pay attention, to be aware of why we feel this is wrong, because he wants to show us a couple of things in our hearts. I think one is the bend in our hearts towards jealousy and envy towards others and their blessings from God. He wants to show us that. And he also wants us to see the temptation to self-congratulation about our own blessings. Let me repeat those. I think this parable and what Jesus is trying to say is we have a bend in our hearts towards jealousy and envy towards others' blessings, and we have a tendency with our own blessings to self-congratulate. I think we see this in both the disciples and in the workers in the parable, and I think we could see it in ourselves as well. What about you? What about me? Are you jealous or envious of another person's marriage? You look at that marriage and you think, or that husband or that wife, you think, oh, if I could only have someone like that. Of course, it's probably just a perception of what their marriage is, probably not the reality. But what about you? Or maybe someone else's job? Oh, if I could only have that job or wish I were in their position or maybe their position at work a coworker maybe a position in church you feel some jealousy or envy or someone else's income or family wealth or house or car or fame or children if you're honest what about you Are there ways in which you can look inside and see that that sideways look is driving you and bothering you? Or, on the other side of it, when things go well for you, in your heart of hearts, do you think that actually you do kind of deserve this? After all, you worked really hard, right? Right? This parable, I think, is inviting us to pay attention to both of those tendencies in our hearts. And the question is, how do you fight those things? How do you fight that constant sideways look or that constant self-congratulation inward look? Well, today, just to close, I'd like to cast a vision for you. I think Jesus is casting a vision for you that those ways of being, that constant side comparison, that thinking about what other people have, or that thinking about that you deserve what you have, friends, that's not life. That's not life-giving, I mean. That's not a place of joy. That's not a place of freedom. That is a place of bondage. That is a place of self-imposed, constant bondage and wounding. When we spend our lives and our energies, when we give ourselves over to the sideways look and the inward self-congratulatory look, you will never find the joy and happiness you're longing for. What instead will alone make a, give us joy and happiness that we long for is that instead when we cultivate a habit of looking to God and considering all his generosity, that in fact God does make it rain on us, right? Right? <laughs> Every day, the just and the unjust, Jesus says, God causes his rain to shine, his sun to shine, his rain to pour upon people who deserve it and people who don't. And whatever, whatever standard you think of that. And that when we look to God as a father, and when we ask and seek and knock, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, when we seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness, then God provides. It may not be exactly what you think you want, but it is what you need, and it is actually what God is shaping and knows. He is wise and discerning and beautiful and all good, and he knows exactly who you need in a spouse and what you need in income and where you, what you need in living in a car. He knows that, and he is not withholding any good thing from you. He is a perfect father who knows what you need and is glad to give it to you. And so if and when we can cultivate habits of looking to God rather than looking at each other and what blessings they have, or looking inward in self-congratulation, then you will find joy. Then you will find the freedom and the life. And the vision Jesus is casting of the kingdom is a life together. We are going to live together in his kingdom in a time and a place and a space where we are free from all that jealousy. And the church, the people of God now, are being called to begin to taste and live in that way. Where we bless each other. We rejoice in each other's blessings. We look to God as a father And we do not look in envy towards each other. We do not look in jealousy and we do not look in self-congratulations. That's beautiful, isn't it? Don't you long for that freedom? Don't you long to live in that kind of life together? That's what Jesus is saying about the kingdom in this parable. And as we close, as we do each week here, we like to think about how all of this leads us into the reality of what we celebrate in the bread and the wine. The reason this is central and the reason we do this every week is because we are reminded that the whole reason any of this is possible is because Jesus came and he, even as his bread is broken, he let his body be broken. And even as the wine is poured out, he let his blood be poured out. And he says, when he he starts that meal that we're still practicing, he says, I'm partaking of this now. But there's a time coming in the kingdom of God when we will partake of it together. And so as we gather this morning, if you're a Christian, come forward, partake of this, as you're remembering God is shaping us into kingdom people. If you're not a Christian today, we are thrilled you're here. There's no reason to partake of this. This is not a magical symbol. It's not going to do anything magical for you, right? This is a confession of faith. So if you're a Christian, come forward and partake of it. And before you do, let me invite you to take some moments of quiet and say, God, give me the freedom where I'm not jealous of others. Give me the freedom to not be self-consumed with self- congratulation. Just ask the Spirit to come and do a new and deeper work in you. Let me pray and invite you." to seek the Lord as well.